0: This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is landscape architect Janice Parker. A veteran of the trade and a master of her craft, Janice has crafted exquisite landscapes for countless high-profile residential projects and won dozens of awards for her work. If you flip open a glossy design magazine and see beautiful rolling lawns, charming stone paths, and a colorful garden, there's a good chance she had something to do with it. I spoke with Janice about the red hot market for exotic trees, how climate change is directly affecting her work, and whether our pandemic inspired obsession with outdoor living will last. This podcast is brought to you by Atlanta Market the premier gift, decor, and lifestyle market. Held semi-annually in January and July at America's Mart, Atlanta Market is the place to discover new resources and to connect with thousands of makers, manufacturers, and sales reps ready to help you get back to business. Source all your needs in one convenient location at Atlanta Market with thousands of brands that are presented across hundreds of showrooms and temporary exhibits offering a curated, cross-category shopping experience with complementary product neighborhoods, including home decor, tabletop, housewares, fashion accessories, seasonal decor, and much more. And all to the trade only. To learn more and to pre-register for Summer Market, July 13th through the 19th, visit atlantamarket.com boh. The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. They've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, they strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. Visit HouseOfRoll.com to explore. And now, on with the show. So tell us a little bit about becoming a landscape architect and building the, the business that you, that you have over the, over the years and, and sort of how you came to be in the, in the field that
1: you're in. Oh, that's a nice thought. Well, <laughs> it's very simple. My very first memory is of a flower. And I think I was probably somewhere between a year and two years old because I was walking and the flower was as big as my head. I remember that. And I was fascinated by it. And I'm sure it was a peony. And the sense of smell was very strong for me, smelling nature. It is for all of us, but we tend to disregard it at times. It's very nostalgic. It's very evocative of things that happened to us as children. So I remember the smells of lilacs and peonies and roses. Though I did grow up in New York City, so how I got all this? <laughs> I guess is where is a all those question, came from. But I'm not sure. Yeah, at Central Park, Riverside Park, and um, <laughs> and so I was always really really fascinated. And at a young age, I started to work in flower shops. And this was the late 70s, early 80s, the Studio 54, which is now rolling along in the miniseries and everything. <laughs> yes. Halston is bringing it back. So much fun. So <laughs> I worked in a store called Rennie, which wow. um, Halston came into. And Rennie decorated Studio 54 at night, very often. Mm. And um, I was quite young, and it was a wild crew absolutely wild crew of the most creative, innovative florists and party designers. And I just was thrilled beyond thrilled to be working there and working. I started with an event company and doing the flowers and helping with that. And we We did large events. Rennie was incredibly creative and incredibly busy. We decorated uh, Rockefeller Center. We did, you know, endless parties that, you know, being a florist of an event in an event shop will make you start to really hate seasonal, you know, events. Like we would decorate 3,000 Christmas trees. And, you know, we got to a point where you could stand back and just whip the lights into a circle like a lasso and just cover the tree with the lights and you're done, you know, Um, and make bows with two hands. And it was just fantastic. And I loved it. And it was a tough time in New York because that was really the first time that AIDS came into, mm. um, into everyone's consciousness. And a lot of people passed away. And I was very influenced by those designers, um, people like Dongia and Jed Johnson. Um, nice. But it was an incredibly creative time. And it was a very porous time. I could have walked into a flower shop of that caliber and get a job. With no previous experience, you know, it felt at the time anyway that all doors were open. So I thought, you know, this is fantastic, but I want to do landscape. And Rennie warned me that landscape was a lot different than doing flowers. <laughs> um, so I started going to school at Parsons, and I learned to do blueprints. And I went and studied in England with John Brooks, and I I went and worked in landscape architecture firms. And at that point, it didn't seem realistic to me. I was already out and working to go back to get a master's in landscape architecture. There wasn't a school in New York that I could do that at. So I worked for other landscape architects and I quickly went out on my own because I wasn't finding anyone that I felt like I could really hook my wagon to who was really exploring all the different things that could happen in landscape architecture. And also I really wanted to be hands-on and I really, I think what I did essentially was teach myself my own thesis. I spent all my time in wholesale nurseries and I studied everything and I traveled and I looked at gardens and I, I was able, because there was no AutoCAD then, you know, you would draw and I would just walk my projects or my plantings back and forth and back and forth before we were going to come and lay them out, um, and identify what, every single thing. And I then my, built my firm. I got extremely fortunate and had some very good projects right away. I was in New York city and there was a woman named Karen Fisher designer previews, which oh, was, yes, yes. She's a legend, legend in
0: the design industry.
1: She was a legend. She was a fairy godmother to me. She trusted me and gave me big jobs, and I had just started out. She gave great support and encouragement to all her designers. Um, She was an absolutely fantastic woman. Do you know that she also wrote books under a nom de plume? I did
0: not know that. And and we should explain for listeners yes. who who Karen Fisher was and what Designer Previews was, because she was one of the early matchmakers for interior designers. And she was putting an A list interior designers in an incredible stable of of talented people. I remember Bruce Bierman told me that he he felt he owed his entire career to her and, and he continued to pay her a percentage of his work even after she had stopped working with him because he felt so indebted to
1: to the work that she did. That was a check you were always happy to write Yeah, and she made many people's careers and it was before the internet so she had everyone's portfolios and she had, I used to call her the queen of Gramercy Park. She had a beautiful little separate studio that she rented next to her apartment that was beautifully done absolutely gorgeous i think the last iteration of it paul siskin had done it and it was lovely and um you could sit there and you could look at everybody's work well that wasn't possible you could get architectural digest you could get a couple of shelter magazines but you had no way of knowing what people did and she also helped a lot of designers learn how to negotiate contracts and learn how to set up their businesses and learn what they charge on and what they don't charge on and she was a great really a great mentor for so many people and and really interior designs champion. No one ran full page ads in New Yorker or I mean in in New York Magazine. In New York Magazine, yes. getting an interior designer, getting an architect.
0: And every week that ad ran in in New York Magazine for so long. You're so right. And now you're sharing with us that under a a nom de plume, she was writing, please tell me these are wildly exciting novels that she was writing on the side.
1: No one book that used to be advertised in the back of the New York Review of Books. the Sunday oh. Times, how to pick up men.
0: Oh, is, it, is that what it was? It was a it was a pickup book.
1: How to pick up men. It was it, it was a bestseller forever. She made a fortune on it.
0: And what were the tips? What was what was the advice? She I was never giving? read it. Yeah. Oh my God, Janice.
1: I never read it, but oh, she. We'll have to I get mean, a copy. She, she just cracked me up, and she she taught at <laughs> NYU. She did all kinds of wonderful things. <laughs>
0: That's fantastic. So she took you under her wing. She
1: did. She did. And she was the ultimate elegant person. Mm. She was a grand dame in the old sense. Do you know what I mean? Like she had just half a refrigerator in her beautifully appointed apartment that had just champagne and Coca-Cola in it. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) That
0: was all she needed.
1: Yeah. And she smoked a cigarette with a cigarette holder. I mean, you could put her with a cook, a chef, a maid, or the Queen of England. And she was comfortable with everyone amazing
0: no no she 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 really was she was amazing and and again so many people have tried to replicate that model that matchmaker model of putting clients and designers and and not with anything like the success that uh, that she had from her from her little one woman in her kitchen operation uh,
1: yeah uh, I agree with you but I also think that the internet was going to give her she was just starting to try to figure out how to conquer it mm mm-hmm. Because I think that her hold really was, if you didn't go to her, you couldn't see other people's work. So I think that the people who are trying to do it now are really challenged by the fact that so many people can see your work. You know, if you want to be a design agent, you are not the person holding the mysteries anymore.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah, well, how, how fortunate that you were taken under her wing, and, and and tell me how that evolved. Tell me what that what that grew into for you. No, no pun intended.
1: Um, so Laura Bon, um, who is a phenomenal interior designer, and she was phenomenal. half of yes, half of Lembo Bon. Mm-hmm. Um, when I knew her, um, I ran into her on a project. I was being interviewed, and she was being interviewed. We did the project, and she said, "You need to meet Karen Fisher." And um she set it up. I went to meet Karen. We got along terrifically. And really, I mean it doesn't matter at this point to drop names. First job she put me on was a job for Robert Redford. <laughs> and I there you go. And there I am, two years into there my <laughs> business. And I'm like, she said, Can you do a rooftop on Fifth Avenue? I said, Sure. And then I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> I must be able to. I mean, I never have, but I'm sure I can. Sure. <laughs> and I said that to her, I'm like I haven't, she said, but can you do it? I said, yeah, I can do it. She said, I think you can. Go ahead, interview. And I mean, I think that taught me or I had always had an ability to be very resourceful and to reach out to others for information and to get, you know, really understand Then I think they say this about producers or, you know, good executives. You need to get the best. You don't need to be doing everything. You need to get the very best advice you can get. And you need to be able to know what that is when you see it and you hear it. And you need to use it and you need to hire it and you need to pay whatever it costs to get it. Um, If you really want to do absolutely excellent work at something that you might not have had a lot of experience in. And I think all of us as designers, architects, we are faced with a certain type of project that we might not have a background in. And yet we should take our... Talent or our ability, or even our straight up entrepreneurship, into these situations and train and get the help we need to do it.
0: Well, so, and is that what happened for you when Robert Redford came to the door? And
1: uh, he called and me told Francine what he through the whole project.
0: <laughs> Francine?
1: Francine. Was- I don't know. I took it. <laughs> yes, Francine at your service.
0: Francine at your service and and so for for that job, did you know that there were things you were going to have to to learn from from someone else or someone else you were going to have to bring on or? yes
1: engineering water, you know the big issue with landscape. the one place you can get in trouble whether you're on a roof or you're on terra firma is water mm. water, 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 water is tricky. You do not want to flood anybody's house. you do not want to flood anybody who is near living nearby. You absolutely do not want to cause a problem in any kind of building on a rooftop, um, especially not in a beautiful building on Fifth Avenue, and your condo board and co-op boards will not let you. And they will have such an incredible restriction on weight, mm. and that will require and did require going to an engineer and working out the calculations for the weights of the plants, the soils, I mean, when I say I get experts, I don't just let them do it and not look at it, right? I learn from them. So you have to be incredibly careful on rooftops. And you do have a lot of liability doing it. But if you get it right, I mean, honestly, irrigating a planter is less water than Mother Nature puts down. Over the weekend, <laughs> right? So, I mean, a roof can handle rain. It should. You just have to be able to um, have removable items, be able to get underneath them and clean them. And there's a lot of tricks of the trade. We did a birch grove. He wanted birch trees. We did gorgeous apple trees. We had an herb garden.
0: Really? All, all up on
1: his roof? Yes. How great. And then he sold it. And uh, Diane Sawyer and Mike Nichols bought it. They lived in the building and they moved up to it. And one day I drove by and there came the birch trees down by a crane. They took them out and did something else.
0: Oh, so they sort of changed the layout. Yeah, we craned them up then
1: they craned them down. Those (laughs) trees were on the move.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you choose to attend Atlanta Market, you're not only getting a hands-on personal experience, but you're also part of something more a community of business owners, manufacturers, sales associates, buyers, creatives, and creators, all with a positive and energizing spirit. Get inspired by the fabrics, the colors, and the design-forward product displays on the showroom floors and take those innovative ideas back to your customers and clients. Pre-register at atlantamarket.com boh and join us this summer from July 13th through the 19th. Help me understand the difference between landscape architect and landscape designer.
1: Well, um, landscape architect and landscape designer is similar to the relationship that it possibly a psychiatrist has with a therapist. Both serve the public in very important ways. And both are truly great professions, right? Mm -hmm. One is licensed, requires national board exams, Uh, Once you pass those, you carry a certain amount of liability for the health, safety, and welfare of the public. So you have a a state license. Landscape designers are generally more focused on the plantings and the more intricate parts of horticulture and are not trained. They may have the ability and the talent, but they are not trained in the same sort of architectural, uh, technical way that landscape architects are. So there's required training for a landscape architect, or in my case, I have 20 years of practice, and then going in front of the board and making my case and showing my work. And I was a landscape designer who wanted the credibility of being a landscape architect even though it was quite painful to sit for board exams when I was already (laughs) way out of school. All the people who work for me, I make them sit for their exams if they're not already licensed at a young age, because you don't want to take an exam in your 50s.
0: No, nobody does. Nobody does. No, you
1: don't. You don't. But it was quite worth it, because all of these things make you more facile, give you more confidence, and they also allow you to be able to qualify for certain types of projects, I'm um, a certified WMBE, which is a Women Minority Business Enterprise, and I. It's very important to me that women go into not just architecture and landscape architecture, but into surveying, into engineering, into contracting. All of those professions are very, you know, well paid. Um, women excel at them. And I've mentored women who work in construction companies Um, as construction managers, project managers. I worked with some great women general contractors. And, you know, we're not very well represented in those fields. And those fields are fields that you can raise your family doing you know, and, um, and anything else that you, you know, if you actually want a life, um, you could actually have a <laughs> life, you know, and, you know, I see a lot of women coming into construction now, which makes me very happy. And I think it'll be good for everyone.
0: Well, I, I, I agree. and And as you say, those are those are the kinds of jobs where you can can make a, a reasonable living. And it and if you can, if you can break through those barriers, as you say, it's a heavily male-dominated, as is as is architecture in general, as is right all of these fields, and it and it has been hard for for women to break through. So it was important to you to have the WMBE accreditation and and to sort of push women forward in in this area.
1: Yeah, there's not actually any of the projects that have come up. I mean, those projects that come up that are municipal and federal, if they don't get done in that administration, the money's gone. I mean, it doesn't ever going to happen. The project won't come back. But, um, what is fascinating about it is when I went to my first public, you know, meeting where they were talking about the projects and the infrastructure bills coming up, there were no women there. There were like four women out of a hundred people. So it was men whose wives, owned let's say 51% of their company and that's that's not illegal and i don't it doesn't make me angry the, it it just makes me think that why aren't women i understand why they don't go into architecture because it's very hard and long hours and very possibly difficult to move up in a big male architecture firm or you know but but in surveying and construction and engineering and civil engineering and structural engineering you know i would love to see people more active in that and more encouraged and and you know it's it's you have to get inside the professions you can't get mad about the way things are you can't try to knock down anything you have to just get inside and do your work it it, you don't you know there should not be any kind of a war no one wins it's just a question of getting inside, moving up, making things more amenable for people to have lives and to raise children because you you can create that workplace, right? And you have to get in to do that though. And you don't get in by saying you don't like it.
0: <laughs> so so you're you're right. So so you're just saying don't. you you get in by just doing the work and proving yourself.
1: You get in by doing the work and by recognizing that it is not specifically targeted to make life difficult for you. It just is what it is,
0: yeah, well, and so how did you how did you go about proving yourself? How did you go about breaking through i mean so you you moved on from your cocaine days at the florist servicing studio fifty four right. right and and then you sort of went the English garden route for for a time, right forever. <laughs> Well, that, that had a heavy, that had a heavy influence.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But what was, what was interesting. And and one of the things that you talked about in your, in your book a little bit and and talking about your time at the New York florists, besides all the wild parties was you, you talked about color. Yeah. Right. And some of the, some of the rules that you learned, you could sort of bend. Yes. And I'm curious about that and what the rules were and how you, how you learned to, to bend them and what that meant.
1: Well, I learned from the absolutely brilliant people I worked with and some of the very sensitive and that they didn't tell you, they showed you. So, you know, I remember once uh, saying something stupid, like I hate red and yellow together. You know, it looks like ketchup and eggs. And this lovely gentleman just made red and yellow arrangements all day. (laughs) Never said a word. And at the end of the day, I was like, okay, thank you.
0: Oh, I get it. I see. Thank
1: you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and, and keeping an open mind and, um, and knowing when you work with plant material, you go to the wholesale market and you stock a walk-in cooler with plant material and you see that how the different greens really neutralize all the colors and how you blend. And, you know, Gertrude Jekyll certainly had her theory and there are color theories and wheels and that it's all true. It's all true, but you can find your way through those color possible clashes with the green and all the different shades of green. And one thing that I find, I'd say maybe 90% of people don't like yellow. And Betsy Johnson taught me that, who I was lucky enough to work on her terrace mm. for years. And she was a divine gift that the universe put in my way, who taught me so much. And we did a garden outside and the, the floor was neon yellow, then it was purple. Then, I mean, we just had the best time. And a lot of silk flowers, because she liked to have blooming flowers in the middle of the winter. And mm. um, we just had a blast. And, and she taught me that, you know, she'd make yellow dresses every couple of seasons, but they never sold but that it was very important because it wakes up a garden. And John Brooks said that as well. So what I do is I tell people it's gold. I don't use the word yellow.
0: (laughs) That's right. It's gold. It's
1: golden. (laughs) Golden what? Golden green. It's not golden yellow. It's golden green. And we use a lot of chartreuse for that pop because it is hard. I mean, pale yellows, and there's just nothing like yellow in the spring. Nothing. Like it. And, you know, every time I have a prejudice or a thought about what I like and I don't like, I try to see through that because of what that gentleman taught me that day. Mm. You keep an open mind. Keep an open mind and look at what's really in front of you without any, you know, all these voices and thoughts in your head. Just keep an open mind and use your eyes. And ultimately, what pleases you, that's what you do. And um with plants and flowers, it's certainly perennials. They only flower for so long. So if someone hated the yellow, it's gone in three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, don't but worry, I, I'll go out of bloom soon. Yes,
0: exactly. You don't like it now, we'll don't worry. It. We'll trim it. Yeah. 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 We'll
1: trim it all off. You know, so um but you know, occasionally someone comes into the office, a client who loves yellow. And it's really fun.
0: And that excites you because yeah. you can't you can't wait to put that to work. Yeah. I want to talk about lots of other things related to that but there's so much going on r- right now in the in the moment. It's probably never been a crazier time for you in sort of all the years you've been in the industry and and there's all these different challenges for you. I know there's labor shortages and tree prices are through the roof and I mean tell me a little bit about what's on your list of just some of the biggest challenges that you're that you're dealing with.
1: You know That's a great, a great subject because COVID has everything upside down. And I think that's probably the case in almost everyone's life and business. What I love though, and what is making it challenging, but wonderful is that COVID changed people's perception of outdoors. So all of my projects, no matter how beautiful we did seating areas and outdoor areas, the minute it rained or it was too sunny, or there were too many bugs or the temperature changed, people just go inside. And people couldn't go inside. And if they wanted to see friends, they had to be outside. So we built pavilions and heated them. We People wanted fire features. We were coming up with ways of there's heated furniture, heated mats underneath rugs on the terrace. Finding people who didn't have outdoor furniture and they couldn't get it or didn't want delivery people coming to their house or they didn't want workers coming to their house, talking to people <laughs> about, you know, just go outside, do, you know, take your chairs, take your dining room table. If there's no rain, you carry out anything you can carry out. People wanting to be outside. And I think it stuck. It stuck. I really do. I think people spent enough time outside to realize how beautiful it really is. Though I think there is a level of challenge for landscape architects and landscape designers in that we are not interior designers. As much as we think we know about living space, we haven't trained in it the way an interior designer has. And I love collaborating with interior designers for that reason. Because I really can design a beautiful terrace, but does it hold the furniture arrangement that they want? Does it work with the house? Is it got the same feeling? Interior designers know their clients' preference for things of chairs, how high, this, that. We don't know that. So if we're going to get them outside, we have to really join these skills
0: well as as you say i mean the people's perception of the outside and seeing it as as, as a safe place and perhaps the safest place right. to to be uh has has really changed things and and i think that's so interesting this thought of creeping into their homes and seeing perhaps their living room seating arrangement to get some inspiration for what you might want to do outside to lure them out and say no no it's going to feel just like your living room but outdoors.
1: Right. Oh absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well so you touched on the fact that sadly it's wildly difficult for people to get furniture these days (sighs) right in all areas and part of that is we've had this crazy lumber shortage right and and lumber prices through the roof and uh i i don't know what all of the different factors are that are to to pinpoint that to but Articles have been written recently about all of these exotic trees and, and things that people can't get their hands on. I mean, are people asking you for exotic trees these days? Is that a, is that a hot topic? Yeah, and, always. And, yeah? Always. So uh, tell, me, tell me about that. And, and what are exotic trees? What trees are, are exotic and highly sought after these
1: days? So I think what happens with that is the trees that are slow-growing. And that keep their form beautifully things like beaches things like magnolias uh lindens they keep their shape as they grow you don't have to prune them in the winter they're perfect they're beautiful they grow in these lovely you know beautiful whorls or you know i mean the structure is just divine without real interference um the leaves on Japanese maples, the colors you get three seasons of the year, and then the bark and the shape of it in the winter, these are trees that add so much value to the landscape. They're sculptural, They know their place. The other thing with that is if they're slow growing, it takes a very long time to grow them to any size that is saleable. You know, no one wants a five foot tree um, if you're buying a beech tree for your front yard. So if a tree grows quickly, you know, some nurseries will still keep it to a very big size. But again, they're not getting a crop for many years. So they have to sell at a high price point because of the amount of time that it's been on their farmland. Um, The other issue you have with a large tree is if it fails. It's not pleasant. and you watch it die.
0: No, no, no. Well, that's the thing. And so what's what's generally causing that when that happens? What's, what's causing a tree to, to fail?
1: Um, a couple of things. I, I would say that a well-handled tree that doesn't have any disease will not fail 100%. So the tree ball, the root ball is large, but the tree is feeding off of very small fibrous roots around the top of the tree. Right, that's where it's feeding. Mm-hmm. Those big long roots below may have found grooves and crevices in the ground and be drinking water, but they're not actually feeding. And if you damage that root ball, you drop it off of the truck. Happens every day. So the less handled it is, the fresher dug it is, the better your chances. And then otherwise, it's really transplant shock, which is rare. Mm. And you know. I have to say this and I sound like Pollyanna but trees want to live and they want to get along with you. There's a few trees that I agree are sort of divas and magnolias fall into that category. Um but you have to be very tough with them and tell them if they don't want to live they can go. Do you know what I mean? Just go. But you know and then they'll bloom and they'll behave.
0: My magnolia is such a fickle friend every Yell year at her. It's a different bloom, sometimes it's flowers, sometimes it doesn't. You think that's what I need to do? Oh yeah, it, it if ju- she doesn't just... want
1: to be in your yard, she can leave.
0: Right, She can be okay. replaced
1: by another magnolia. <laughs> younger. A, a, younger. <laughs> a younger, that'll get prettier her. prettier magnolia.
0: <laughs> 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 the House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. They've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, they strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. Visit houseofroll.com to explore. Getting back to the challenges of the summer of 2021. Oof. right. I, I mean, people tell me we've got a uh, swimming pool shortage, you the do. tree shortage. So what's what? So what's the swimming pool issue? The
1: swimming pool issue is that if a swimming pool company had maybe sixty pools a season, they now have one hundred and sixty. So the issue is they're, they're very busy. There is just a labor shortage, as everyone knows, for all kinds of different reasons. And a lot of these crews worked, not swimming pool crews are more seasonal, but the laborers, the site laborers, the landscapers, the excavation crews. Um, honestly, on a lot of the general contractor jobs that we were on, the big jobs, people all got COVID. It was closed yeah. quarters. People got sick. It's just, it was a very hard year, and a lot of people are extremely, extremely exhausted from it. And I also think that, you know, these guys work, uh, the crews for a swimming pool company who shoot the gunite and do the excavation and make the rebar and stuff, they work very long hours. And what I try to remind people is if they come to your job at 7 and they pull off at 3, they're going to another job. They're not going home. You know, I mean, it is a lot, uh, and they'll make it, but, um, there's just the price went up as it is a capitalist society. And, um, we've had a price bump that I don't think will go away. That's happened. I've been in this career for almost 40 years. We've had some price bumps and then we sat still after 2006 and Mm -hmm. we're bumping and i don't think it's coming back down i don't think it's covid pricing i think once the industry can make another benchmark like that it makes it
0: and where are you seeing that especially everywhere. i mean everywhere everywhere right in your experience in the past i mean do, do these prices roll back when the when the sort of craziness and the frothiness sort of wears off a little bit
1: i think on plants it will to a degree because people don't need a shrub, but people do need the steel for their swimming pool. And they do need to put that in. So that that business keeps growing. And I think that um, those supplies are not, you know, particularly arbitrary. You have to get concrete, you have to get steel, you have to have labor. But you know, if you don't want to buy a hanging basket of petunias, you're just not going to. So You're still going to have to make plants affordable for people, but you don't have to make concrete affordable to people. They have to have it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. But it sounds like you you think that in many areas it might might linger for for some time. I mean, do you think everybody, everyone's so excited about the outside and their backyards, do you think that stays or once people are back to traveling and back to packing into movie theaters and air-conditioned spaces again? Do you think some of that will wear off or what's your sense?
1: My sense is it's going to stay. And I think it's going to stay because people have increased their real estate value in that if they sit out on their fire escape or they're using their building in the city's backyard more They've just gotten, you know how, you know, the the human instinct, right? You, they, you get an apartment, you start looking at the apartment next door, above you, beneath you. You <laughs> buy a house, you start looking at the house next door. I mean, we are naturally opportunistic and territorial. And we just develop more value, right? We don't want to give that right. away. We just developed right. an outdoor space that, you know, possibly we're not using it, but we certainly have increased the value of our home. We've increased the richness of our life and we've added another room to our house by sitting outside. We've got a whole nother space and we've, and we now have developed an appreciation for it and made it more usable for seasons of the year. You know, as as, as I look at things for interiors growing up in New York city, where you had, you know, a closet for a bathroom and thought you were pretty lucky. And now people have bathrooms the size of your whole apartment um people have not saying, gee, I'd love to go back to that little bathroom. You know, wouldn't it be great yeah. to just have a stall shower and not be able to turn around in my bathroom? I can't stand this big bathroom. It's horrible. You know? Can I just this have rain a,
0: shower, shower head? Oh God, take it back. I don't yeah. want this
1: big closet. I want to jam all <laughs> my stuff into a tiny right. little space. You know, once people have another place to get gear for and to spend time in and you know, they want it. You know, they're gonna keep feathering their nest. And I think that's what the business we're all in, right? The business of home is is we have such a compelling drive to create our environment. You know, and um, I was actually thinking about that when I was watching an osprey on one of our projects on the water An osprey build nests, you know, high up nests um, mm-hmm. and the male osprey cannot get a mate until his nest holds together. And it could take him three or four years to build a nest that holds together. They're not very good at it. They're just three not, or four years yes, they're, they're... for a young male. They're not good. If you look at a lot of osprey nests, there's more stuff on the ground than in the nest. They're just terrible. (laughs) So I never saw one, I never watched closely enough that they actually don't pick up branches, which is how I assume they build their nest. They go to a tree and they just, they nip off a piece. So they're like, they're actually engineering this nest um, Mm -hmm. and deciding what size branch to bring back. They have a little tape measure, no. I'm. I got this little bird tape measure they're using. Uh, but um, it's just an instinct. We have an instinct and we've all gotten a, bitter, a bigger nest. Our mm-hmm. conception of what is our home now is including the outdoors. Because it wasn't that it was just safe outside. It was the only place we could socialize. Right, right. You know, you had your friends over, you had your family over. You, you know, suddenly that's, that's now another room
0: well and as you were saying earlier all of these new enhancements have been added and all of these creature comforts have been brought outside all of the elaborate heaters and the and the mats underneath that 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 are also heated and uh one's one is a little bit worried about the electricity going out in in some of these neighborhoods Mm -hmm. right
1: oh yes when my my clients heated to billions went on, I expected a brownout in the whole neighborhood. (laughs) Oh, the Joneses are entertaining again. (laughs) I can just imagine right. The Joneses are having a party. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I think that this is a wonderful trend for the industry, you know, and is common in this creative industry we're all in. People have jumped to the front with all kinds of great new ideas you know the ingenuity is incredible you know the outdoor led battery lighting coming in all beautiful shapes and sizes and really clever uh, fans and you know great ways to i mean we can all with our cell phones see what's going on outside and i mean so many things have actually made the outside feel so much safer and so much more accessible and i had clients who have never touched soil call me on facetime during covid and ask me how to plant their pots and how to plant up a tomato and it's just a whole new universe for some people
0: and how exciting for them mm-hmm. i mean and and you you and i both grew up in in new york city and i i, I was not heavily exposed to to nature and uh, and and trees opened my eyes to so many amazing mm-hmm. things and uh, and, and so I'm I'm so glad to to, to live surrounded by it now uh, versus my East Seventy First Street apartment that didn't uh, that didn't didn't have any have any trees or a beautiful roof garden like Robert Redford had uh, sadly uh, with his with his birch trees. But I want to get back to something that you were saying earlier, which I which I thought was so interesting partnering with interior designers mm-hmm. to sort of bring them into the outdoor projects and. I know that that often in the past, you've talked about, oh, I, I wish the landscape people were brought in earlier on the project, I mm-hmm. wish, I wish that we were there at the table from the very beginning. And I wonder about that, that struggle and, and interior designers often say, oh, I wish the architect had brought me in earlier and then the sure. landscape person, right? And so how do you sort of wrestle with that? And, and tell us what, what the advantages are of bringing you in from the very beginning and getting your take.
1: Well, I think um, it, it helps the project overall economically for people to understand what they are going to, the scope of what they really do have to do with their land, if they're building a house or if they're renovating or adding on. But the other part of that is also understanding the views and the rooms in your house and where you, you know, do you want to see through trees, into trees, over trees, all of these thoughts and how you position and orient a house or, or create a renovation or an addition that truly has outdoor, indoor spaces, screen porches, pergolas, things that really need to position in the landscape in the right way, you know, that you're not going to have sun in your eyes at the wrong time of day. You're going to understand, you know, what, where you need shade, where you need sun and all of those things.
0: This notion of sort of helping people understand what the investment is really going to be. And mm-hmm. and so often I feel like that's not well enough understood, right?
1: No, people don't want to talk about it. And, and people maybe don't understand it. And people aren't looking out for their clients, particularly their future once they're gone. You know, they, <laughs> that they don't feel that that's their responsibility. And certainly when you are in this for a long period of time and you see people get their yearly bills and you see them in January, look at their whole year's expenses and see this one very large number you want them not to cut it back because they made an investment so what is that number going to be talk about it from the beginning what ways can they lower it what things do they have to have and are willing to pay for we do not want anybody anyone certainly who has worked with us or anybody to feel that their landscape is a burden
0: well it's 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 so it's so interesting and and as you referenced the the parallels with with interior design i was i was speaking to a wildly talented interior designer the other day who was who was telling me that there's nothing more heartbreaking than when she revisits a client's home and doesn't see signs of them having actually lived in it, and and sort of mm-hmm. right and sort of adding their their layers and adding, the, her design was was there to 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 make a beautiful space to be sure, but the the beauty was going to become even more enhanced when you start to 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 live in it, and it's it's the same with the with the garden as you've often talked about, you know it's it's not going to to look full yet when it's first installed things need to grow and grow over each other and you're going to cut this back or you're going to let this grow more wild right i mean there's there's just so many layers to it
1: so much has to happen and they all have to start singing and dancing together and getting to know each other and working together you know which they do and um and and you want to give that a chance to grow a little bit
0: Mm. well and and as you say i mean there's there's no Greater example of something showing you a will to live than a, than a tree, right? I mean, a tree just goes to such incredible lengths. To, the, the roots go so deep down to find water, and the, and the, right. and all of the things that a tree does to adjust to its climate and the, the precipitation and the and the changes around it. And yeah. and as you say, it 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 can be so inspiring understanding that and, and witnessing that on a, on a regular basis.
1: I mean, I, you think about the redwoods, right? And you think about oh. all of the things that trees have brought us, you know. I, th- I think we discussed last time the book The Overstory mm. by Richard Powers, you know, yes. which is the overstory of trees that the planet has given us, you know, and it's up to us to respect it or not respect it at our own peril.
0: Well so i i i mean perfect segue into this whole sort of climate change issue and 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 sort of the the impact that we know that's having and it's been so fascinating so much is being written recently because of the rising lumber prices and all the tree shortages and and, and all of that it's a little bit of what what have we done right and so much of it we we brought on ourselves of of course and i wonder from your perspective what 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 is climate change starting to to look like what are you starting to see and feel
1: well i can tell you that farmers and the usda maps don't pay any attention to politicians it's gotten warmer and we can grow species that were dying for us 25 years ago. So we can grow crepe myrtles and we are growing, I mean, pretty soon we're going to be growing bougainvilleas and hibiscus if we're not careful. <laughs> uh, you know, so those plants are being sold here. They've changed the zone requirements on them and it's warmer. It's just warmer. And, uh, it's not as cold in the winter and the plants are living. And, um, and, you know, what I find fascinating is we know the seas are rising. They remapped after Sandy, but nobody can get enough waterfront property. It's never been more expensive or desirable. And it happened right after Sandy. Everyone wanted to move <laughs> to the water. I mean, I just love people. I love them. The, what is it about us? The, you know, we want to be right on the edge. Where yes. We you want know?
0: I want to buy this beautiful house that could sink into the water I mean, at you know, any moment. Water. That's
1: right. Where I have to evacuate if Sandy comes again. I mean, Sandy was very serious. And those houses fly off the real estate market. They go for outrageous prices. The Hamptons has never been busier on the ocean. So, you know, it's it's. Um, we've done a couple of houses with sluice gates and flood gates in the basements and having to put all the mechanical equipment up much higher above the flood elevation than the houses. So they're putting the house down at elevation eight or five, and those are all feet above sea level. Right. But the equipment has to, by code, be up at 15 or 17 on a giant platform. You'll see this as you drive along the water, um, you'll see generators and air conditioners sitting up high like a tree house. And the house is, opens out onto the water. So um, it's, you know, we really have to come up with some ways to screen those. It's been very challenging. Uh, you know, get big trees that are going to live in submerged salt water around the generator for the house that they're insisting <laughs> on building where it's going to flood. So, I mean, you, you just wonder sometimes. Well,
0: and, and so, and, and, and is that as, is that just people just living in denial or, or is it, I mean.
1: No, I think they know. They love it. It's exciting.
0: They love it. They're, they're living on the edge and they, and yeah. right. And we're going to enjoy this spectacular yeah. water view as long as we can and whatever we have to do.
1: Attraction, the power of attraction.
0: It's all worth it. It's worth it. It's all worth and it. And
1: It is beautiful.
0: It's interesting, and as you say, it tells you so much about human nature and uh, right, and and, mm-hmm. and and what people will do. I I'm wondering. We we talked earlier. Sometimes the challenges of being brought in too late with the architect, or or uh, I know that sometimes there's a little bit of friction there. Designers often struggle with with that. But the exterior plays such a huge role in in everything that you feel about a about a house.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I think that those dynamics are naturally in and the contractor naturally suspects everyone's drawings of being incomplete and lousy <laughs> and and naturally is looking for all the flaws and is, t- is just can't wait for you to leave the site meeting. I mean, all of these things are sort of, of ground in, but then at the same time, I always try to see that opportunity to just ignore all of that. I found out, much to my dismay on some trips with, with groups like the you know DLN and the design leadership network and things that people think landscape architects are a nightmare and we're flaky and you we're the, one of the worst subs you can bring in. And I overheard this at the oh, bar. No. They didn't know I was there <laughs> and I'm overhearing very well-known admired architects discussing oh, what a nightmare no. we are. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm listening and they're all drinking away and I go over and I'm like, what? Thank you so much. I had no idea we were dreaded. I didn't know that. And certainly I've always, you know, fought to do an absolute professional job, but that made me up my game even more because you don't know what you don't know. I always say to architects, they only see themselves on a job. Interior designers only see themselves, right? We see both of them on lots of jobs, but we don't see other landscape architects. So it's very important to observe mm. the profession's perception of your, of your profession and their perception of your skill level and what you need to change to challenge that. So if my profession is considered flaky, that's my problem. Even if I'm considered the exception, it's still my problem. Right. So you know, we have to up our game. And um, I, I find all of those things to be fascinating. So I try to tell architects I haven't worked with before. I'm not that one that you talk <laughs> about at the bar. That's not me. You're not going to be at a bar complaining about me in a year.
0: The last thing I am is flaky. I am, right?
1: You're not going to be at a bar. You're going to be at a bar talking about how much you love oh working my with me. I,
0: I had no idea how great landscape architects could That's be. That's right. That's going to be with with your Judith bar Parker. conversation.
1: That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget that night.
0: That is so funny. Well, again... Architects have an opinion about interior designers. Interior designers have an opinion about architects. Landscape architects, as you say, get to see both, and uh, and and know. And then and then, as you said earlier, the, the contractor can't wait for you all to leave so that they can get down to work and correct those drawings and and do what really needs to be done.
1: It's right. And, you know, I think interior designers have a challenge. They really have a challenge that's an age-old challenge in that their licensing profession does not have standardized contracts and standardized ways of feeing the way that landscape architects and architects do. They don't have the AIA documentation. And they're sort of a little bit all over the place. So you wouldn't know who's the psychiatrist and who's the therapist. But, you know, the really professional interior designers are so so highly skilled and so technically skilled and i i know architect would find them a problem to work with because they're right in there with you know um all of the same knowledge and 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 all of the credentials that are needed to turn out a great project
0: well and and I, and i think you're so right that and and designers talk about this all the time that Fee structures are holding that industry back, or, or 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 right, or the the variation of fee structures and the, and the contracts or the accreditation that some have and some don't have, and and yes. it, it's it is challenging. Is it is it very standardized in your industry? Is not is at land- all.
1: Oh, in, in landscape architecture, in, yes. in landscape, yes, yes, and we have some open book. You know, meetings and sessions at our uh, exposition, our yearly convention, which, of course, we didn't have due to COVID, Mm. uh, where, you know, you're vetted and you have you put your books on the table and it's um, non-disclosure agreements. And you talk about how you hire, what you pay, uh, how you do your taxes, what your overall profit is. Um, And these are phenomenal Phenomenal moments where we can all help each other. And, you know, this is something the industry could use so much more of and cross industry. Interior designers could learn so much from the more experienced and older interior designers and how they run their businesses. And I don't mean older in age, just in business longer. Whenever you're going into a business, there is so much you need to learn about business. And I hear in our industry meetings and groups that we get together with and do breakout groups, interior designers are all over the place with how they charge. And they know it. And at some point you can't experiment. You either choose, you choose a way you charge, you know, if it's hourly, by the room, by percentage, but you got to choose one. And so many creatives just refuse to really look at the numbers.
0: I agree, and 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 so many interior designers t- tell me all, all, all the time that they they wish there was more standardization, or they wish the client w- wasn't getting ten different bids from ten different designers with all different. I charge by the hour. Or I only charge a design right. fee. I I mean all all of this, and and they all wish that it was something different or or something more standardized, and that. Everybody seems to wish these days that there was greater transparency. And as you also talked about earlier, just a better understanding of what it all really costs – That's what we need to educate people about on every
1: level. Absolutely. And real accountability. And then you're going to have the end user who is going to do to interior designers what they don't do to architects and landscape architects, which is go online and shop for the furniture themselves. And this is, you know, this is just killing them. And the bottom line is you're paying for people's advice. You're paying for having that person having a vision. And, um, and that's not tolerable that they try to undercut your work. And I think that they have a whole set of challenges coming in this environment and with the availability of information um, that is going to probably change the way they fee. They have to change the way they fee. And they have to be paid for their time and their services properly.
0: Well, and that's exactly what it is. Honor those services and that's have right. a respect for, the, for the, the art and the craft and the design work that you're bringing to it. And that is what I, I hope will come out of this, of this time. I, I, I hope that we will do a better job of educating people around what these things really cost and, and, and the value of what designers and architects bring to everything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I don't. I could, and people ask me to specify furniture. I don't. And I, I don't because it's so much work. I have so much respect for what interior designers do. A chair doesn't just show up. They have done so much work to get you that chair. Um, And that time is valuable and you pay for it
0: happily. Janice Parker, I could talk to you all day long. Sadly, I I don't get to, but it is such an incredible pleasure. Thank you so much for for making the time.
1: My pleasure. And we'll catch up soon.
0: I hope so. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job boards, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus. I'm Dennis Scully.
1: Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.